A reading from Exodus. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male, or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. The message about the cross, cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. 
The Jewish leaders then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish leaders then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a lamb of your own flock, a sin of your own, a, a sheep of your own fold, a sinner of your own redeeming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The divisors of the lectionary have done something rather creative. We've been reading Mark. This is year B. It's all about Mark. And instead, they've decided in the third week of Lent to give us the story from John. This may seem like it doesn't matter. After all, much of the details are same. Except in John, this is what begins Jesus' ministry. And in Mark, this is what begins Holy Week. It's helpful maybe to get a little bit of context because... Even if you visit the Jerusalem temple today, of course, it's pretty much ruined. In fact, there's only one structure left from the edifice that is, uh, was around at the time of Jesus, and that's the Western Wall. Maybe you've seen pictures of this before. Um, Jewish folks who are praying and writing prayers and stepping them in the wall, and of course that wall was in fact a retaining wall. It was not there to divide people from holy and unholy space. It was there to hold up a bunch of dirt so that the temple platform could be viewed from miles around. And such was the destruction inflicted upon the temple in the year 70 of our common era, that's A.D., that the Romans even took all the dirt out. When Solomon built the temple, this happened in the year, oh, around 976 B.C., The temple was the size of a basketball court. When Herod undertook to renovate the temple, that's Herod the Great, the temple was enlarged to the size of three football fields. That's bigger than basketball, just to make sure you know. (laughs) And uh, the temple platform was exceptionally big, not because the temple was enlarged. No, the temple remained the size of a basketball court. What did they do with all of the other um, hectares of meeting space? They turned it into a forum. That is, this was the Mall of the Americas, the biggest shopping galleria in the entire Middle East the eighth wonder of the world. How did Herod do it? He didn't just backfill, he created archways so that he could elevate and not have to backfill. This was an architectural masterwork with some stones weighing more than 400 tons. You heard that right, 400 tons. Some stones so large, archaeologists aren't sure how they were moved. 
If you've been there, you have seen one of these. It is incredibly big. The scene that Mark describes has Jesus turning over the money changers' tables. Why would he do such a thing? We heard this morning in the Decalogue, the reading from Exodus, that you can have no graven images, to quote King James. No graven images. And of course, you know, currency is notorious for having graven images. The Roman currency particularly had the picture of Caesar Augustus or perhaps Caesar Tiberius. These were ordinary human beings that had proclaimed themselves to be gods. Hence that money could not be taken into the Mall of the Americas because it was by the temple. The way this worked is that before going up to the temple, at the very bottom of some 30-foot vertical steps were the money-changing temples. If you intended to shop at the mall, you would change your currency at the bottom for imageless, solid silver coins. When you were done shopping, you would trade them back in because, of course, no one else took that currency. It's sort of like going to Disneyland and buying a lot of Mickey bucks. It's fun because it has Mickey's picture on it. They will not take it at the Waffle House. So what do you do? You have to trade it back in, and of course you know they will not give you cash back. You just have Mickey Bucks. A lot of fun, huh? So this is a sort of the deal, is that people were coming to worship, and you know money changers only operate on a commission basis, so built into their worship experience was expensive piety. And Jesus says in Mark, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. It was that. It was the mall of the Americas. But you have made it a den of robbers. That is, you have decided to profit from all nations. You have made piety expensive. But we're not reading Mark today. We're reading John. And John does something dramatically different from Mark. Perhaps it's because John is written some 30 years after the temple is destroyed. We don't know. But in John, notice that Jesus not only flips the tables, he goes up the stairs and releases the animals. He drives them downstairs. Now in the temple portion, animals required for just about everything. Cleansing from a disease. Circumcising your firstborn son. Or other sons, for that matter. Consecrating them. Asking for atonement or forgiveness of sins. All of this required animal sacrifice. And here is Jesus in John. Now this is only John. This is important. Getting rid of all those animals. It's as if Jesus is challenging the temple system itself. This is different from Mark. It's really important to hear this. And Mark, Jesus is challenging profiteering off of piety. John, Jesus is challenging the very practice of piety that is centered in the temple. This may sound strange to us because depending on how comfortable you are with the Bible, you may or may not realize that the Bible itself is very uncomfortable with the temple to begin with. When Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, depending whether you're reading Exodus or Deuteronomy, he spends 40 days talking with God about how the people should be living now that they're free from bondage. He gets the 10 words. 
which we heard in Exodus. But God also says, listen, do not build a temple because I don't live in one place, Moses. I live everywhere. And if you ever go to build an altar, don't use masonry and don't use hewn rocks. Use field stones so that it will fall apart when you're done and next time you'll have to build another one and people will then remember, I am not limited to one topography I am all over the place. Uh, Again, if you know your scriptures, Solomon hears God telling him to build a temple, which, by the way, is a complete change of what God told Moses. When Solomon does it, Solomon builds the temple and then attaches it to his palace, which is three times larger than the temple. Separation of church and state? I think not. (laughs) Every prophet since Solomon, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all the minor ones criticize temple-centered piety. They say things like, I abhor your sacrifice because you hold on to injustice. Change your hearts first, then change the expressions of your piety. Jesus goes around quoting prophets an awful lot. And I wonder if today, and we've got to hold this in mind, Jesus himself was consecrated to the temple, worshipped there, but I wonder if he isn't for John's audience. These are people 30 years after the temple has been destroyed, reminding them that the temple was never meant to be a maximum. It was never God's intention to just go to a temple and let your religious life dwell only there. Rather, the temple was meant to be a minimum. It was meant to be a starting place, a location that would help focus our piety so we could go out and practice it openly and publicly. John, it's like Jesus is saying you have turned a minimum into a maximum. You're focused on this building, but the temple of God is here. If we take Jesus seriously, it's there and there and there and there and there and there and out there. And the question is, will we worship God in the places God dwells, all of them, or will we minimally draw our attention on a circumscribed area of our lives? I think that's why we have the other scriptures to ask us in that consideration today. Please consider the reading from Exodus. We know this in English. We call them the Ten Ten Commandments. But I think it's really important to focus on the Ten Commandments. You know, in Hebrew, they're actually called the Ten Words because in Hebrew, they are literally ten words, like not kill, not steal, not lie. You can turn that into one word in Hebrew. English doesn't quite work that way. You might say, well, sure English does. Be honest. (laughs) That's not what they command, is it? It's a really interesting thing that of our ten words, eight of them, frankly, are negative. No images. No misusing the Lord's name. No other gods before me. Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't want stuff that's not yours, don't have adultery, 
that's not yours. There's only two that are positive. Have you thought of this? Honor your father and your mother and honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I want you to know that I have kept all of these commandments with various people who live on my street and I don't know any of them. I have never lied to them because we've never spoken in two and a half years. I have not committed adultery with their spouses. Really, I haven't. I don't even know if they're married. (laughs) I haven't killed them. Does this mean I get an A? See, I think this is a really interesting thing. Sometimes I'm afraid we take 10 words and make them commandments and realize these things are minima, not maxima. What does Jesus ask us to do? Not kill our neighbor or to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Really easy not to kill your neighbor when you don't know them. Really easy not to want their stuff when you have no idea what their lives look like. Really easy to take ten words and make them commandments and in so doing settle for the least that God intended instead of the most. I think probably the reason we do this is because it is so hard to think about honor. You ever tried to figure out what it means to honor your father and mother when you disagree with them? Anybody? You'll notice my hand's up. Marry somebody your parents did not approve of. You did not do it to spite them. Oh no, you did it exactly because of the way they brought you up. To be wise and discerning, to appreciate compassion and empathy. You did not obey them and you honored them at the same time. Anybody lost sleep over that? Think about honoring the Sabbath. It is illegal to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus himself says, which of you who has a donkey that falls into a well will not break the rule and save a life? Not working is a minimum. Saving life is a maximum. I still have not figured out how to honor my parents when we disagree. I'm just going to let you know. I don't think I'll figure out when my children are honoring me or (laughs) when we disagree. I just want to let you know. And maybe this is why we settle for minimums because maximums are so difficult to live into. We all probably know by now the acronym SMART goals, don't we? Specific and measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely How can you be specific about giving life to somebody? That could happen a million and one different ways, don't you suppose? It's a lot easier to say, I'm just not going to lie today. I guess we could say, well, we'll just be honest. But what does honesty even mean? Does it mean that when somebody asks me a question, I don't equivocate? Or does it mean that I am vulnerable and open with the world whether they ask or not? Would that be a difficult outcome to live into? 
I think it would be darn difficult because I don't know how to measure it. Do you? Is it relevant? Oh God, I hope so. Is it timely? Oh God, I think so. Is it specific? (laughs) I don't know. You see, this is why I think it's difficult. And this is why I think we usually settle for minima when we make life goals. I'll give up chocolate, I can verify that. I know I did or didn't. I'm going to be healthier. That's so ambiguous, how do we measure that? No, let's settle for something we can measure. In some ways, I think that's why our reading from the epistles today says God has picked the foolishness of the world to be real wisdom. Because, of course, when you can't measure a goal, it's foolish to make one. It might never happen. I wonder if Jesus isn't inviting us to consider our residual 21 days in Lent as an opportunity to make some really unsmart goals. Goals that are not specific and measurable. Goals that may not even be achievable, but ones that are extremely timely and relevant because they ask us to live into the life God imagines for us instead of the life we settle for. The good news is, if you've picked something measurable and easy, you have 21 days, which is all it takes to make a new cognitive pathway in your brain, to do something different. This, nobody seems happy about that. I think this is good news because it really allows us to say, instead of settling for something like not lying, I will try to be honest, even knowing that the metric for that might be different an hour from now. And why am I willing to deal with such ambiguity? Because it's relevant and timely and because it won't just transform three months of my life, it will transform my life and the lives of the people that I come into contact with, because it will say that God doesn't just live in one locale, it says God lives everywhere, and so I will be honest with God wherever I meet God, which is in you, and in you, and in my barista that was much too slow this morning, and in the people I work with that are much too chatty, or whatever it is you pick that they are, or that family member, You pick it. Sometimes I think we approach people and God with too little in mind. And we think that faith is just about doing what we can. Instead of saying, God, I don't know if I can do it, but I know you can. And even if I fail, I will try to live into something bigger than myself, not something equal to myself. I think if we do that, piety is not expensive for people (laughs) who can't afford it anyway. It might be expensive for us. But isn't that the point? Isn't church the one place that exists for people who don't go to it?
That's hard to measure, isn't it? Thanks be to God, we are called to live into values that are bigger than we can measure.